Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, it's your host Harper. I'm so excited that you're tuning into the Made Visible podcast. We have a great guest today, Carly Alterman. Carly is a recent graduate of Washington University in St. Louis. She grew up in South Salem, New York, and is currently living at home while studying for the MCAT. She plans to apply to medical school after exploring the medical field during her two gap years. Now here's Carly. Carly and I met a Touchpoint mental health town hall shortly after the devastating news of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. She shared her story about serving as her dad's caregiver at a very young age. I immediately ran over to her after the event to tell her about the podcast and see if she'd be willing to chat with me. Her story was so compelling. She's the most well-spoken, poised 21-year-old I've ever met, and I'm so excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Carly. Hi. (laughs) So why don't we begin and tell me a little bit about who you are, where you live, and what you do. Sure. So my name is Carly. I'm 21. I'm turning 22 in two weeks. And I live in New York. I live like an hour north of New York City. And I've lived here my whole life. I just graduated from Wash U in St. Louis. So I was there for four years and just moved back home. I'm living with my mom and my older brother at the moment, which has been interesting. But I went to school like I kind of knew that I wanted to be a doctor from a very, very young age. So I went to school knowing right away I was going to be pre-med. And so that kind of dominated like the first couple years of my college life. And then halfway through, I still wanted to be pre-med, but I also had spent a summer in Israel and I decided I wanted to do international area studies kind of at the same time. So I ended up majoring international area studies and doing a lot of like global health work or global health like courses and learning Hebrew as I was doing my pre-med stuff. So that kind of is what I graduated with, which wasn't what I thought I was going to end up doing. But um, I kind of got the best of both worlds by doing that. And other than studying all the time, I love spending time with my friends. I'm lucky to have an amazing group of friends. And I'm a hip hop dancer. So that's like another big thing that takes up my time. And yeah, that's kind of what I do. Right now I'm studying for the MCAT. So that's taking up most of my time this summer. But hopefully, once it's done, I can go back to doing more fun social things, because that's really what I like to do. I love it. I didn't know the Israel part. And we are certainly going to need to discuss that offline. And you may need to teach me Hebrew. I can. (laughs) I can try. I could try. I love it. So we're going to dig right into the topic that we brought you on for. No, it's not an easy one, but appreciate you being open to talking about it. So tell us a little bit about your dad and your experience with him when you were a kid. Yeah, so my dad's name was Harvey. So I grew up, obviously, with him, my mom and my older brother. And I never really got to know him healthy because he was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease before I was born. And it was something where he became sick like many, many years before he was actually diagnosed because chronic Lyme disease and Lyme disease in general wasn't even a diagnosable illness until about like 10, 15 years after he had been um, bitten by a tick and infected. And so when my mom and him met, he knew he was sick, but he didn't know what he was sick with. And then 
when he was diagnosed, you know, it was really new. So they didn't know what trajectory it would take or, you know, what it would look like. But my parents decided to, you know, stay together and still have a family together. And he ended up, it kind of took on a similar track as something like ALS would, where it was neurodegenerative. And so he started using a cane and then walker and it kind of progressed and progressed. And by the time I was in fourth grade, he was in a wheelchair pretty much full time and stopped working before I was born. So when I was really young, it was just fun because I got to have my dad home with me every single day. And even though I could, I knew he was sick and I knew, you know, things were going on and he was getting IV treatments like in our house every day. To me, I was just excited because no one else got to hang out with their dad as much as me. And so I got to go on errands with him and, you know, like just hang out with him in the house all the time. And we were incredibly, incredibly close because of all that time we spent together. And as he got more and more sick, it never affected his brain. So he was fully capable of communicating and having a, you know, emotional relationship. And he was like incredibly intelligent. So we shared a lot of the same interests in terms of like medicine, because he was actually a doctor before he was sick. Yeah. So um, we were incredibly close. And even though I had to be his caretaker physically in a lot of ways, like with my mom and my brother, um, he was still very much present as like an emotional support for me and, you know, a father figure and like the total emotional rock of the house, even though we had to take care of him. So yeah, it was a really different upbringing than most of my friends had. But when I, you know, would speak about it with my friends, my dad was always the one that was the most involved in like his kids' lives because of all that time that he got to spend with us at home. Wow. I know that a big thing that you mentioned when you gave this talk that I heard at Touchpoint was about not really being able to be a kid at home and that when you were at school and outside of the house, you were a kid, but at home, you were really a caretaker. So I would love for you to share, was there a defining moment of when you began serving as the role of a caregiver? Yeah. So I definitely had to become an adult really early on because of his illness. And that kind of, I think the defining moment for me was when I was in second grade, he fell and broke his skull. And the reason that he had fallen was because the chronic Lyme, like, you know, it's neurodegenerative. So his balance was off and he was having trouble walking. But at that point, he was still using a cane. And my mom and him were out for dinner and he actually fell and fractured his skull and suffered severe, severe brain damage from that and was in a coma for a few months. And at that point, I was too young for them to really tell me, but they thought he was going to pass away or be brain dead when I was in second grade. And so he was in the hospital and rehabilitation for about a year. And I was going to visit him at the hospital every single day, spending all of my time after school there, kind of having to live with friends like for a little bit here and there, like sleepovers a lot during the school week, which, you know, when you're in second grade, it was like, oh, that's so fun. I can sleep over at a friend's house in the middle of the week. But I think when he came home from that, that kind of was like, he was never going to be the same fully, not in terms of like his ability to communicate with me, but his level of illness just really increased from that point on because of the damage that that accident had done. So I would say starting in third grade is when I was really one of his primary caretakers and, you know, having to help him around the house, help make his meals, help put him into bed and really, you know, take on a much more hands-on role than I had before, just because his physical state had declined a lot. So that was kind of, I think, that accident is what I point to a lot as like 
a really big shift in our home life. Yeah, of course. So what about that? Do you remember and being the caregiver? What was that experience like for you at such a young age? Honestly, I... I was so oblivious to the fact that no one else my age was doing the same thing. I really thought everyone goes home and takes care of at least one of their parents. Like I just totally didn't know that it was so out of the norm because I was so young that it wasn't even a conversation my friends and I were having together. And until you're talking about it with your friends, you don't really know how different your life is from them. And so because I was so young, I just kind of assumed that everyone had something that no one else knew about or everyone had a much different life at home than they had at school or, you know, at sleepaway camp or at dance class or wherever. And so for me, you know, like my parents always made sure that I was still able to be very involved in activities and I never had to not do activities because of taking care of him. But at the same time, when I would get home from those activities, my life just looked different. Like, he was in a wheelchair. So simple things like putting his dinner in the microwave because he couldn't reach the microwave or setting it up for him or helping lift his legs into bed or making sure that he doesn't fall out of his wheelchair when he's reaching for something and things like that um, are kind of the first, I guess, memories of being a caretaker and what that kind of looked like. And as I got older, I, I took on more roles because obviously what you can do when you're seven is different than what you can do when you're 13. So it kind of like developed as I got older. And at the same time, as his condition was getting worse, we also had nurses coming to the house to help him at some points. And he was the kind of person who never wanted me to know if he was in pain and never wanted me to know if he was having a really bad day. So even though I was taking care of him since a very young age, he didn't really make me aware of how much he was suffering until I was about 11 or 12. And so once I was 11 or 12 and I really knew how much pain he was really in and how much he was suffering, that's kind of, I think when being a caretaker for him became more intense just because I wasn't just like doing the actions anymore because he happened to not be able to do them. I was doing them because he was in too much pain to do them, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Well, and it sounds like he was a really strong person and really wanted to make sure that you had somewhat of a quote unquote normal life, whatever that means, but also recognizing the things that he was not capable of doing without you, your brother or your mom. Completely. And I think he was like very, very, very optimistic as a person. And, you know, even to the point where my mom and him would like argue sometimes because he was so optimistic that he would say, oh, you know, by like this time next year, I'll be driving again, or by this time next year, I'll be walking, or he really always was looking at his illness as something that was going to get better. He never, or at least never revealed to me until very late in his illness that he ever even doubted that he'd get better. It was always like he was going to, it was just a matter of time. And my mom is much more of a realist. And so they would argue a little bit sometimes because he would always err on the side of, well, things won't be like this in a year. And she would always err on the side of, but what if they are? Wow. That's intense. Yeah. Really intense. And what kind of doctor was he? So he was a dentist. Okay. And he loved his job, was like obsessed with it. It was totally his passion. And my my grandpa, so his dad, um, made dentures like for a living. So he was around 
I just, just, I, I think he was around the profession and around the field for a really long time. He grew up around it. So it was just totally like his passion in life and giving up his practice was a huge, huge, huge loss for him that he talked about constantly, even into when I was a teenager and it had happened 20 years before, or, you know, 15 years before. Well, and I think one of the things that keeps coming up for me is how your experience as a child was so different from other people and how you weren't really aware of that. So I'm curious what your friends thought of the situation and how clued in were they to what you were dealing with at home? Were they coming over? Were they not allowed to come over? What did that look like? Yeah, so I think um, the biggest thing was when I was you know, in elementary school, I had a few friends that um, I was incredibly close with that were family friends. And I really, in, in elementary school, spent the majority of time with those people because they were friends that their parents were friends with my parents and there was a general understanding. And so in elementary school, like my main friends were people that knew my family. And I think part of that was just that my parents when so much was up in the air and he was in the hospital for a year and he was in really, really bad shape, my mom needed her friends to help out and they had kids my age, some of them. So those were who I really was close with at the time. But then when I started making my own friends and friends that were separate from my family friends in you know middle school, it really depended on the friend how much they were able to kind of understand what was going on. And I got lucky because a lot of my friends were incredibly supportive and I think it's easy for kids to be uncomfortable with seeing a wheelchair or seeing all these different medical appliances in my house and kind of not knowing how to talk to him. But my dad was very friendly and very open and very like willing to just hang out with my friends. And so I think that they got to know him as a person. And even though it took a little bit longer, whenever they would come over, he was there. So they got to know him a little bit better than they would someone else's dad who wasn't around that much. And so it was really hard for me when I had the realization that it wasn't the norm for everyone else, because that's when I had a lot of emotional issues with it. Because once I realized that this isn't happening to everyone, I kind of realized like that I'm, you know, I have a reason to be upset and I have a reason to be really devastated. But before that, I just thought, oh, this is just life. When do you think you made that realization? I think probably in middle school. Like I would say around seventh grade, it started to become something that I realized wasn't really the norm. And it was really hard. It was like the year I was having my bat mitzvah and it was a whole big deal. And a lot of things about it had to be different because, you know, he was in a wheelchair and, and there were certain things we couldn't do or there were certain things that weren't going to be realistic. And I kind of had to face that you know, also going to all of my friends' bat mitzvahs. And like, as funny as that is, and as unimportant as that might seem, I think seeing everyone with their families every weekend was definitely a time where I kind of had to realize, okay, like my family doesn't look like this, and it's not going to look like this. Yeah, that's got to be so hard, especially at that age. I honestly can't even imagine what that was like. And I know that, you know, into, I believe, high school is when he passed away. So can you talk a little bit more about that experience and especially how you handled that situation? Yeah. So he passed away in the March of my sophomore year of high school and my brother had gone to college. So we were three years apart and my brother went to college my sophomore year of high school. 
And my dad had been declining, like his health had been getting a lot worse. There have been a lot of complications coming up for a long time um, that were because of the Lyme disease, but it wasn't directly the Lyme disease. So like opportunistic illnesses, kind of like aspirated pneumonia and different complications with that. And so we were going through a really, 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 really hard time when I was in eighth and ninth grade, because as his condition was getting worse, it was becoming more and more unsafe to have him at the house because he would fall a lot out of his wheelchair because he was basically paralyzed from the chest down at that point. And if he couldn't balance, but he was still trying to do things, um, he often would fall. And then my brother and I would come home from school and he'd be on the floor and it, we couldn't pick him up. And so that was happening, you know, upwards of three to four times a week. And other things were getting worse. And with my brother going away to college, we had to make changes because my mom and I couldn't take care of him, the two of us, the way that my brother had been able to help out. And he declined really rapidly the summer before my sophomore year. And they thought he was going to pass away then. And I was actually at sleepaway camp at the time. Um, and they gave me the choice whether to come home or not, because they said, you know, it could be a couple days. Uh-huh. And I kind of always had a sixth sense with my dad. We were so close that we can kind of like tell each other or know what we were thinking without saying it. We just had that kind of relationship. And I just knew that he wasn't going to pass away. And I knew that um, if I went home, that he wasn't going to pass away. And so I didn't go home. And my family thought I was crazy because they were like, how could you not come home if this is the last time you're going to see him? And I was like, no, no, trust me. He's not going to pass away. He's not ready yet. I can tell. Yeah. And um, I was right. And I got home from camp that summer and it was my oldest summer as a camper. And so that everyone says like, oh, the last day of camp is, you know, the worst day of your life. And it's just the hardest day you'll ever go through. And you know, you don't sleep the night before camp ends. And so you basically go home a zombie and have to sleep for days and days and days. And I went straight from the bus from camp to the hospital. And so my life was just so different at that point for my friends, it wasn't even recognizable. I was going to see him in the hospital and could have been the last time I was going to see him. And I didn't know if it was going to be. And after that point, it just became obvious that he wasn't going to be able to continue with the level of care we were able to give him at home. And so it was a really, really, really um, devastating decision. And no one really wanted to make the decision, but he actually ended up having to be in a nursing home for six months about. And that was something that was, I think, one of the hardest points in our life as a family together, because he didn't want to be there. We didn't want him to be there. But we couldn't, you know, afford the type of 24 hour care that he would need at home to be safe. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those decisions where it had to happen, even though no one wanted it to happen. And so while my brother was at college that year and he came out of that really bad summer, he went into a nursing home and, of course, was the youngest person there by many, many years. And that first half of the year for me was really, I'd go to school. And then after school, my mom and I would go visit him at the nursing home every day. And it was horrible because he was a totally with it, intelligent, like emotionally present guy. Like he was not old. He wasn't, you know, anyone's grandparent. He wasn't supposed to be there and yet he had to be. And so I spent most of my time that first half of sophomore year 
um, visiting him after school every single day. And so even though I wasn't really directly taking care of him anymore, in a lot of ways, I still, you know, I was because I was still spending all of my time there and he was in and out of the hospital at that point. And so we were either at the hospital or we were at the nursing home. We couldn't really go anywhere with him that much. We tried to, but it's really hard to, you know, for two five foot one girls to (laughs) be able to lift a much larger man and bring him everywhere and just kind of deal with that. And so we spent a lot of time together at the nursing home. And then um, as he got worse and worse, he was spending more time in the hospital. And then he went into the hospital at the beginning of March of my sophomore year of high school. And I had that sixth sense thing again, where I said to my whole family, you know, this is it. And they were all like, you're being crazy. And I was like, no, I I just know that this is going to be the last time. And he passed away two weeks later in the hospital. And so, I mean, it was just unimaginable. There was no way to really encompass what that's like. And my brother came home from college and luckily made it in time to say goodbye. But, um, you know, that was just unfathomable because he had never been the kind of person to ever, ever, ever even suggest that this illness was going to take his life. And I never thought it would. I really didn't think that it would get to the point where he would pass away when I was so young. But that is what happened. So, And I think it's hard because a lot of people don't think of chronic Lyme disease as something that could ever take someone's life. And it, it did. So it's still something that I'm blown away by because I just don't hear of other people with the same experience as me or with or as him. And so it, you know, takes a lot of explaining when people ask what happened and and what he was sick with and why he passed away because it wasn't the norm. I'm so sorry that you had to deal with this and still do. I, I honestly can't even imagine what it's like. One of the questions that I have for you is it really sounds like he was really adamant about not letting his illness define him. Completely. That I talk about a lot, and it's something I know will be talked about a lot on the podcast because there's so many ways to live your life and somewhat enjoy your life, even if you have these crazy challenges and struggles that you're dealing with on a daily basis. And completely. In his situation, not being able to deal with a lot on his own and needing your support. So I, I really can't even imagine what that was like for you guys and give you so much credit for being able to do what you do. I'm sure you feel like you didn't have a choice. And this is what you had to do for your dad, because it's your dad. But I give you a lot of credit. I'll say that. Uh, So how did you cope with his passing? And how did your life shift when you were no longer caring for him? I think, um, you know, a lot of people would assume that because I wasn't, I I didn't have to be his caretaker anymore, that I would be able to be more of a kid or I'd be able to be more carefree. But I think the problem is that when you lose a parent, that is when most people like lose their ability to be a kid. So it's not like after he passed away, I was able to go back in time. Losing a parent at 15 years old, you have to be an adult because of that alone, regardless of what it was like before. And so um, it honestly was just a mess. (laughs) I was a hormonal teenage girl at the same time that I was losing a parent and at the same time that I was 
my life was looking so different. My brother moved home. He's transferred to a school closer to home. And um, I, my whole life changed. I just, it was really unimaginable. And I, I honestly don't remember a lot from the couple months afterwards because it was so traumatic that I blocked it out. A lot of it, I don't, you know, I don't really remember, but um, I do know that I was really adamant about spending as much time as possible with my friends. And I was in, you know, at my dance studio six days a week and was with my dance friends constantly. And I just, I never wanted to stop doing the things that I love to do. And I knew that I had to keep doing them, even though it was really, really, really difficult. And, you know, like I said earlier, I was really lucky because I had an amazing group of friends that were so supportive and were so there for me. And they really treated me like so, 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 so well and were so loyal that I was really able to rely on them. And I'm like the, I'm kind of, I'm the kind of person that no matter what's going on in my life, like if you have a conversation with me in person, you probably can't tell how I'm feeling because I'm always bubbly and I'm always like happy. Um, and that's just like my personality, but my friends knew that even though I was able to laugh and have fun, like they knew to ask how I was feeling and they knew that I would want to talk about it. So I was lucky that I had them. And my mom was obviously going through the hugest loss of her life at the same time. But we had to kind of figure out how to help each other in a way that worked. And that was really hard. We definitely had rough patches because we both needed support. and We both wanted support from each other. But it's hard figuring out what's the right way to go about that when you're a teenager. And most teenage girls and their moms have a whole separate set of issues that we still had to deal with. And so it was just a really, 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 really hard time. It was not easy. And I think for me, a huge thing was just making sure that I worked so hard in high school so that I can like have the college experience that I really wanted. Cause I knew college would be like my time to really start over because everyone at my high school knew my business and they knew what was going on. And so I knew that like, if I can just make it to college, then college would be the time that I can really form my own identity separate from this thing that had happened to me. Yeah. So did you feel like you needed to hide what was going on or did you feel uncomfortable talking about it unless it was your closest friends who knew you wanted to speak about it? In high school, I didn't really have a choice because the day he passed away, they announced it in my classes because I wasn't there. And I didn't know they were going to do that. But a lot of my friends had known that he was really sick and getting worse. And so they actually announced it in my class. And so I didn't have a choice. Everyone knew at that point. And I think also with social media, it just word travels fast. And, you know, so many people from my high school were at his funeral that had never even met him, but that were there for my brother and I. And so I wanted to have a normal high school life. I wanted to be treated the same way as everyone else. And I think some people were good with that. And some people were just not really sure how to approach me because, you know, I remember getting back to school after being out of school for an entire week and before that being in and out of school for a long time and then getting back and people, you know, just, they don't know what to say. And I don't blame them. I mean, it's, what is there to say? But college for me, I think, was the first time I was able to choose whether I wanted to hide it or make it something that people really knew about. And when I first got to school, I chose to hide it. I privated all the pictures like on Facebook and Instagram that would tell people that he had passed away. 
And I decided like I would choose who I was going to tell. And I think a lot of that was that I just wanted to see what my friends would be like if they didn't know. Or I just wanted to see what I was like without people already knowing that about me. And I think something that I realized really quickly in college was that it was so part of my identity that hiding it made zero sense. And hiding it wasn't going to make me have a better experience. And so I would say like six months into college, I started being more open about it. And at the same time, though, I was still only, you know, it had only happened two years prior. So I was still going through mourning. And it wasn't until I think my junior and senior year of college that I was able to really open up about it and talk about it with people that weren't my closest friends. And now I think senior year was when I was able to finally after, you know, he had passed away five years before and I was able to finally tell my story in a way that was more public and not so just for my best friends to hear. You know what I mean? And it was more like, I'm at a point now where I can tell it, not because I'm confiding in someone, but because I'm able to share it, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. That totally makes sense. And it's amazing that you found the friends and the support system, family, friends, even with the relationship with your mom and your brother to be able to support each other. I mean, I can't imagine that's easy while everyone is going through it, but it sounds like you were really there to help each other and go through this together. Yeah, I mean, we definitely tried our best and it wasn't easy. And there were a lot of tense times afterwards. And I'm not going to say that, you know, we were all like a happy little unit after it happened. But I think that my brother and I had our issues. My mom and I had our issues. They had their own issues. But like at the end of the day now, you know, six years later, we are very much there for each other and incredibly close. And I think it took time, but we all are at that point now, which is really lucky that we are there for each other. And I think an interesting thing is also that there's no right way for handling anything like this. No, there's not. There's no manual or way that you're supposed to mourn or how you're supposed to be a good caregiver or how you're supposed to be a good friend. There's no standard for any of that. No, there's not. And the best advice I ever was given and have given to every single person I've met who's either lost a parent or is taking care of a parent or a close friend or anyone in their life that's sick or dying is advice like one of my really good friends gave to me right after my dad passed away, which was there are no rules. Like you are examined from the rules And so do whatever it is that makes you feel comforted. And that helped me so much. And it was funny because she gave me that advice because I was like, you know, I'm eating pasta for every meal. All I want is carbs. And she was like, Carly, there are no rules. Like you're mourning. If you want to eat pasta, eat pasta. And like she thought that it was casual advice, but it just applied to everything from then on out. And it was like, there are no rules. And it's helped me and helped a lot of my friends who have been going through similar things since then. Um, And it's so funny that it was about, you know, pasta, but it was and it worked. It's comfort food. I totally get that. And I love, love, love that because it's true. There really are no rules. You've got to do what's right for you and what's right for your family. So at this point, how do you continue to cope with the passing of your dad? It's now been a few years. You're out of college. You're starting this new life. What does that look like for you now? Um, I think now for me, it's just that 
And like I said before, we were so, 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 so close that I have kind of adopted just a new way of looking at my relationship with him. I still feel like I have one, even though he's not here physically. I definitely see his influence like in my choices every single day. And whenever I'm doing something that I would want him to be a part of, or I, or I would have shared with him or, you know, I do thinking about him, I really feel like he's a part of it. And I I don't feel like he's not around. I feel like he's just so present in every choice I make. And so I think a big thing for me with coping with his loss was just reminding myself constantly that he was still a huge part of my life and that wasn't going to change and that I'm no less close with him now than I was six years ago. And just because he's not here doesn't mean I um, can't let him influence my life every day. And obviously, you know, I'm studying to be a doctor and he went through the same thing and did the same thing with his life and chose the same career. And so I think that makes me feel really connected to him too, because I wanted to be a doctor when he was still alive and we would always talk about it. And I'm lucky enough that that didn't change for me. And so it's kind of something that connects us because it's something that he passed away thinking I was going to do it and I'm still wanting to do it. So it's really cool that he's kind of up to date on that part of my life, even though it's been so long. I love that so much. And I'm sure he'd appreciate the follow through. It sounds like you're honoring his memory by going to med school and becoming a doctor, which is incredible. Are there other things you do to honor his memory? In the choices I make every day, I honor his memory. Like the fact that I mentioned before how optimistic he was about everything. I make a conscious effort to be that way. Um, Not because it's always what I'm feeling, but it's because if he could do it with the amount of suffering he went through, I can definitely do it considering I'm not suffering nearly as much as he did. And I kind of just always view things that way. I'm like, you know what, it could be a lot worse. And if he can be there for other people, regardless of the shit he's going through, then I can. And so I think in a big way, like it's my friendships where I try to honor him the most because I'm, I try to be always there for my friends and very loyal and stable for them, regardless of what's going on in my life. And so it's just kind of reminds me of him. I just try to be who he was in a lot of ways to remind me of him and to make me feel closer to him. I love that so much. So I know you mentioned that there's no rules, but I'm wondering if one of our listeners recently became a caregiver to a family member or someone close to them, what advice would you provide them with? I think the biggest, biggest, biggest piece of advice I can give is to continue making time for the things that you love to do separate from being a caretaker So like I said, you know, I've been a dancer my whole life and I love having lots of friends and socializing and that never stopped when I was a caretaker. I still spent my summers at sleepaway camp and I still went to dance six days a week. And I think that's the biggest thing you can do is just don't feel guilty when you're doing something fun and don't feel guilty for making time for those things because the more you do those things, the better of a caretaker you'll be. And so it really helps both of you in the end. And My dad was huge on that. He never wanted me to feel guilty for sleeping over at a friend's house or for going out to dinner or for whatever it was. And um, I think I was able to be more there for him because I had that time to kind of like reset and relax outside of kind of my role with him. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where self-care and doing things that are fun and bring you happiness are so important, whether you're going through something like this or not. 
It's just remembering to take care of you because you're the best version of you when you're able to give your 100%. Completely. So Carly, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to make sure we bring up and discuss here or any lessons that you think you learned that you know you can share with the listeners? I mean, my dad would definitely be so mad at me if I didn't tell everyone to check for ticks when they go outside. That's like a huge thing. And it's so funny because, you know, he was so, so, so adamant about me raising awareness about Lyme disease because it's so much more common than people think and people don't really talk about it. And so I think a big thing would just be like, from a really personal standpoint, like I just hope that people are being aware of what's changing in their bodies. And even if a symptom doesn't seem like it's because of Lyme disease, it can be. One of his first symptoms was depression. And no doctor thought to give him a blood test to check for Lyme disease, but that's what was causing it. And so, you know, just be really mindful of what's going on in your body. And like, if you notice changes, be open to an array of causes, not just the ones that are the most obvious. I think I just have to say that because I know that he would want me to take every opportunity I can to say that. <laughs> but yeah. Is there a nonprofit or any sort of organization that you think is doing good work to raise awareness about Lyme disease? In terms of awareness, I'm not really sure, but I know the Columbia University Lyme Disease Research Center is doing a lot of research that's, you know, just regarding Lyme disease in general and the path it takes in the body and diagnosing it and how to deal with it chronically because, you know, it really is affecting a lot of people chronically. So I would say they're doing a lot of good research. And the doctor who started it was actually one of my dad's doctors many, many years ago. But if there are ticks in your area, definitely get checked. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Great lesson. Carly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And really, there were so many lessons here that I'm sure our listeners can learn from you. And your dad, I'm sure, is proud of you for all that you've accomplished going to med school soon and all of that. You're, you're a real special one. I know that. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.